0: Hello, I'm Natalia shpilova Said. I'm a host of New Books in Ukrainian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm delighted to speak today with Sibylan Forrester, translator of Volodymyr Fejenko's novel The Length of Days, an urban Ballad, which was published by Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute in 2023. Sibylen Forrester is the Susan Lippincott Professor of Modern and Classical Languages and Russian at Swarthmore College, she has published translations of fiction, poetry, and scholarly prose from Croatian, Russian, and Serbian. Uh, hello, Sibilan, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for the invitation, Natalia.
1: It is a pleasure.
0: So, The Length of Days by Volodymyr Rafayenko is the second novel published by Huri. Uh, Monte Green, songs about death and love. Uh, Rafayenko's first novel in Ukrainian was translated by uh, Mark Andrzejczyk, and it was also published by Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute in 2022, and it was subsequently shortlisted for the Taras Shevchenko National Prize, Ukraine's highest award in arts and culture. And Length of Days is Rafayenko's last novel in Russian. And it was originally published in 2017 after Volodymyr Rafajenko had to leave Donetsk as Russia initiated its advances in the region and subsequently sponsored the so-called Luhansk People's Republic and Donetsk People's Republic, this chimerical quasi-republics. So I'm curious how translators select works they want to translate.
1: That's a very good question. And I don't know how Marko Andreechik selected Mondegreen, but I'm so happy that the novel has had so much success. And um, I actually was approached by Olyev Kutsyuba from the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute at the ACES conference. That's the Association for Slavic, East European and Eurasian Studies conference in November of 2021. And he said, would I be interested in translating uh, Rafienko's The Length of Days, uh, I said possibly, and he said he would send me the text as a word document so I could take a look. I had not heard of Rafienko, which tells us something about the kind of education we get, and then the kind of education we continue to receive in the profession, so to speak, which is a topic we might want to return to during this conversation. But I started reading the um, the document as a word document, and just was charmed by We hear the beautiful writing, the fact that Rafienko combines really deep and thoughtful knowledge of Russian literature with an acute sensitivity to popular culture. So in the first few pages, not only does um, Amy Winehouse kind of stroll across the stage, but then we see Rosa Luxemburg for just a moment. And uh, this really is true throughout the novel. So I quickly wrote back to Olyak by this time it was on email and said, I would love to translate it when I saw him at the ATSIOL conference, and that's the Association of American Association of Teachers of Slavic and Eastern Languages in February of 2022. So this was like the 18th, 19th, 20th of February. And thanks to Maria, I'm liking on her name from MIT. Uh, we'll have to come back to this <laughs> at this point. Um, Maria uh, and I were talking over whom to invite as the featured poet, and um, decided to invite Oksana Vopsyshina. So it was an at-seal conference that had more Ukrainian, more attention to Ukrainian than is the typical story. And we felt so good about it. And then um, I had maybe translated 10 pages by then of the novel. And then the 24th of February came and I suddenly felt very different about the translation project. So when I was in graduate school, there was no opportunity to study Ukrainian where I was studying. At that moment in the sort of mid 1980s, I'm not sure there was anywhere in the United States to take a university level Ukrainian language and then, especially, literature and culture course, except for Harvard. I know Canada did and does better, and I know that now the United States is doing better. But um, I again had not heard of Raphael until I started working on the translation, but the invasion really sped me up. And I had it finished in about six weeks. Mm -hmm. I had to consult with Oyev about the popular culture angles because I'm fine with Amy Winehouse and I'm buddies with Rosa Luxemburg. But um, there were many, many things that reflected recent Ukrainian culture. And and it's not just a matter of my background. Well, first of all, I'm not a native Russian either. But um, my Soviet background was all acquired through education. My post-Soviet background, as we see, has been a little bit, Catch-as-catch-can with reference to Ukraine, but it's an age thing. Just not of an age to have been watching the funny children's program where the the, the um, avuncular presenter thought that the mic had been turned off and said something a little bit obscene that he should not have said, which was the way the joke turned at one point in the text. Mm-hmm. So it took a, yeah, a while to read it and answer my questions and then i think uh, looking at the novel there were a few bits of careful editing after i sent in the final version and uh, that was probably june of 2022
0: well, well, um, it's quite remarkable how a book can tell us something about ourselves and also trigger all these stories that somehow are interconnected and entangled. And uh, you translated the entire novel quite fast, within huh. six, six, six um, months? Um, Yeah, shorter than that even, really. I would say it was
1: six or seven weeks mm-hmm. from the moment of the invasion. But that was possible because I was on sabbatical. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, this was not the project I planned to do during my sabbatical leave. But it really made me feel that I could contribute in that little way to lifting up the culture of Ukraine, um, making, making sure that this really good writer is represented. Mm-hmm. I had also translated a bit of Ukrainian poetry, mm-hmm. being invited by people. I think on the one hand, um, those who invited it was, um, oh, Maxim uh, Chuk, what is her first Oksana, 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 Thank you. I wanted to say Oksana, and then I thought I was imagining because I was just putting Oksana Zabushko on my on my reading list for the fall for a a course. So um, Oksana Maximchuk, who was a Bredmore student back in the day and won a translation prize named for Richmond Latimore, the classics Mm -hmm. professor and translator, contacted me about Words for War that came out, I think, also in 2017, um, and clearly with two agendas one was to get as many people involved as possible uh because it is important and then they tell their friends and and their their networks as it were and more people will read the results but also to get the translations done as quickly as possible
0: Mm -hmm. Um, could we talk a little bit about the composition of the english edition Uh, it includes a list of characters with a brief introduction and explanation of cultural and historical events and figures It also includes an afterword by uh, Marcy Shore and her interview with Rafayenko. And these elements amplify the text, but they also create some context. Uh, What had to be commented on and explained and what didn't need any introductory note. And uh, I'm wondering how uh, Marcy Shore's afterward contextualized the text, which in fact... Um, is written in Russian um, a few years before the full scale invasion, and uh, as you also uh, mentioned, you started translating this uh, novel before the full scale invasion started, um, and it somehow. It, but after the twenty fourth of February, it somehow also impacted right your um, like realization of what this project could be. But the novel itself, in many aspects is quite prophetic and to be honest i had to check the original date of publication because it just sounded too too um uh, up to date too 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 current
1: absolutely right and when i saw the city of z i was thinking how could he possibly there must have been there must have been something underneath the selection of the letter z, z. Mm-hmm. i was thinking z as an american some kind of source that maybe Rafianco could Inform us about that explains why it it comes across like the city N in nineteenth-century novels, but it also comes across, I think, with Z or Z as an algebraic variable that you, you're you're going to fill in something and who knows what it could be anything depending on the equation. So I actually did not compose the glossary of terms which precedes the novel, nor the list of characters with alternate names nor the list of other characters. I suspect, um, I have Green. I bought Mondegreen, I haven't had time to take off the shrink wrap yet and read it, although I I, I keep hearing what a wonderful translation of, what a wonderful novel. So I don't know whether this came from the experience of publishing Mondegreen, realizing that the reader will prefer to be able to flip back. And this is certainly true for many novels, especially great big mm. novels of the 19th century or Russian novels, for example, where the names of the characters change depending on, is this Alexei Fyodorovich or is Avariosha, right, understanding the difference. So very often novels, have kind of that, but not usually contemporary novels. So making it easier for the reader. I think that although the afterword makes it I don't want to say schizophrenic it really and then the interview with Rafayanko, it really is contextualizing the novel as a historical document in a way that's partly correct you're right that it's prophetic it's really impressive that this was written after uh 2014 after Rafayanko had to leave and and um his his comment was i don't think i would have survived I realized i had to get out in order to to stay alive, not just to continue uh, his professional career as a writer, and as a scholar, but also um, it, it clashes just a little bit with the novel because the novel is a proper novel. It's not a historical document no. at all. Mm-hmm. It is full of um, accurate recollections of the stories of individuals who bad things happen. Many of them are in the stories that are presented as having been written by one of the characters in the novel interestingly because I read this with um, no vision of Rafayenko, when I received the copy of the novel his picture on the back looked a lot to me like this character who was a chemist but then became a masseur and Rafeenko is sitting with one, um, one fist against his face and then the elbow on the hand of the other arm and his arms look like a massage person's arms they're just very muscly that, um, so that was funny. But the uh, the contrast of those stories, which are very realistic, although sometimes very moving, very upsetting even, in, in the details of what happens. And then the main text of the novel, which is full of fantasy and magical realism, and the idea that Rosa Luxemburg Luxembourg could appear as a kind of a hologram on the street in Donetsk and then finally be kind of sent away by prophylactic things that the invaders do, but taking with her a couple of the best students from the university. These wonderful, wonderful traits, little songs, little rhyming pieces that erupt into the text. So the reader is going to be delighted by the novel, is going to learn quite a bit from the novel, but it's good that there is this afterward, both to explain things about Evanko's biography that didn't happen until after 2017, when the Russian edition was published, but also to pick up on some of the prehistory. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. since the invasion, February 24th in 2022, there's been a lot of news coverage. And before the invasion, there wasn't so much. Unless you were paying attention, mm-hmm. you might've had no idea
0: Yeah, well, since you mentioned that um, this novel um, is not, of course, um, documenting some historical developments, but it does include a lot of uh, accurate uh, historical uh, events. Um, Sometimes it also includes some elements, I would say, of a diary or even memoir that records the tragedies of those who found themselves in the epicenter of Russia's initial assault in 2014. But it also has some elements of uh, philosophical explorations that um, boils down to the question about how one can cope with violence, and what's the purpose of violence, and how violence can be aborted. Additionally, Length of Days is also a psychological investigation into trauma. Uh, On the other hand, there are so many cultural and historical references that amplify this novel's narrative about a group of people who think that might have a way to stop the war. And and as you also pointed out, (laughs) um, the um, uh, novel includes phantasmagorical elements that add some hope, some humor, and at the same time to an extent increases the sense of urgency and the time of despondency. So um, what's your commentary on this very very mosaic, I would say, uh, way to combine all kinds of genres and all kinds of elements and um, put together this narrative that is very urgent on the one hand, but on the other hand also gives this insight um, for for those who would be interested in understanding what is happening in Ukraine right now and why um, Russia launched its assault on Ukraine, but on the other hand also gives some hope, although maybe it's very... It's very it's very feeble, it's very weak, but still there is some hope. So what's your commentary on this mixture of <laughs> uh, that was a lovely uh, summary of the things going on in the novel and it's a very complicated
1: novel. I do want to say first and foremost, and I may have already said this in different words, you don't have to care about Ukraine to enjoy this novel. Mm-hmm. Now i no one will pick it up who doesn't care about Ukraine because that would be awful. But it is so beautifully put together. When I went to edit it after the first version, I was very taken by how many hints about what was going to happen pop up from the very beginning. It's, um, woven together very tightly, but you're right. There's this phantasmagorical element. There's a discussion of what happens to people after they die. There are people walking around who to all intents and purposes are dead, but they're participating in the narrative just as much. At first, they show up in a story and then eventually show up at the end of the novel, um, is that a metaphor for having your country taken over or your part of a country taken over is it a metaphor for leaving and becoming a different person switching into another language i know that Mondagreen involves a lot of attention towards the trauma caused by returning to a language that's been buried mm-hmm. with buried also suggesting the past of the main character whose grandparents um although they spoke ukrainian didn't always survive to meet their grandchild so so yes, the the mix of plot and of embedded stories of sort of crazy things happening really does make it feel, I don't want to say like magical realism, because to me it's a, a very creative and different um, organization of the text. I think the subtitle, An Urban Ballad, on the one hand points to it being based in a city. So... I think often if we think about ukraine educated as i was at least we think oh beautiful fields of sunflowers beautiful wheat fields and not so much of the character of the city which is a more international place as long as it's a city right something like odessa kiev full of people from live full of people from other places and donetsk as well mm-hmm. the fact that there were so many ethnic russians there underlines that they were sent in in the soviet period much as russian ethnic russians were sent to other former Soviet republics to tip the balance. And the ones they were sending were largely not educated intelligentsia members. They were largely factory workers who were not going to learn the the language of the surrounding population. um, I think also one thing that interested me because I got to these points after the invasion happened, there are moments when the narrative is critical of big Ukraine and the way it's treating this part that's now been kind of partly invaded, partly, um, I don't know, whatever we would call what was happening in Luhansk and, and Donetsk, that, um, you know, there's critique of the very nice Ukrainian young man from somewhere off in the West who fired a mortar shell that broke into the apartment of one of the characters. Didn't he know not to shoot his his fellow Ukrainian? Uh, there are moments when there's communication between people who left already, people who've stayed behind, and then once our main characters get to Kyiv after they, quit, I won't spoil anything by describing how they make it to Kyiv, but it's really quite a quite a way of making a trip they discover that they're kind of looked down upon by the population there who refer to them as botniks, the, the padded coat worn by non-intelligentsia Russians, right, but in particular, not that Ukraine is warm, but these people are coming from a colder uh, colder climate. Mm-hmm. The um, Russian, I don't want to say soldier, and yet he is the tourist, because they're all supposedly there on holiday. Ivan Ivanovich from Siberia, um, Rafienko actually treats him with a lot of sympathy, not making him into a better person than he is, but understanding why he did this stupid thing, why did he decide it was a great idea to come to, Ukraine and try to russify it.
0: Yeah, I I would like to um uh, spend some time uh discussing Repayenko's perception right of Russian literature and Russian culture because he actually was educated right in Russian mm-hmm. philology he graduated from Donetsk University with a degree in Russian philology and length of de- of days is his um novel written in Russian and it, it was uh written right after he uh well sometime left to, uh, after he left Donetsk um after 20 14 and he was still um, uh, considering writing in Russian although he already started learning Ukrainian and he started moving toward writing in Ukrainian Um, but um uh, he had to leave uh, his home again in 2022 when he was living on Bucha. And as we know, Bucha was captured by the uh, Russian troops. And it, when it was liberated, the world was just shocked by the crimes and massacres committed by uh, mm-hmm. Russian troops. Miraculously, uh, Rafa and his family were able to leave Bucha. Thanks to the help of people who were ready to risk their lives and I had this privilege of meeting Rafayenko in person uh, mm-hmm. at um, ACES as well in mm-hmm. 2023 uh, three and um, was it 2022? No, it was 2022. <laughs> yes. Um, and it, it, again, for me, it was like a it was very precious gift <laughs> to meet him in person. So and in the novel, Rafayenko attempts to describe the essence and nature of this concept of Russian world and Russianness in general, which is not very appealing, uh, in many cases, to say the least. And this is written by a person, educated in and through this culture, and he received a lot of prestigious literary awards in Russia as well. Uh, Apparently there is a gesture of not just dismissing Russian literature and language as they appear to be part of the Russian world, but deconstruct it in order to show how Russian literature and language become part of the ideology that destroys. So would you share your reading of Rafayenko's representation of the Russian literature and culture and language uh, as well? No, it's such an interesting question because you can tell from the novel that
1: he's read everything, every Russian classic. Not that There are so many obvious references, but he breaks in a way Russian culture into the, the Vatniki, so someone like this Ivan Ivanovich and his his brother, I'm not sure whether they're actually related or just refer to each other as bro, Fieja, um, uh, and they both wind up, anyway, <laughs> not to spoil the story, but interesting things happen to them. Once they're there, they have no culture at all. No culture at all. And there's a wonderful segment where Ivan Ivanovich, whose name is like the most ordinary, like John Johnson, right, in, in English, is uh, thinking about his grandfather, who was almost killed by nuclear radiation, at a um an experiment a test uh following the second world war in which in which thousands and thousands of people had their lives ruined and he comes back to his home um, impotent and clearly bearing some kind of weird precancerous condition uh luckily ivan ivanovich or not luckily uh, ivan ivanovich's father has already been born but that's the only child that comes of that marriage and um So there is quite a bit of sympathy, but there's that example from the Soviet period. So the Soviet period being deconstructed as one that doesn't care one bit for um, human value, for individual liberty, for the value of one human life. This is the cliche, right? That beginning in the very beginning, Muscovy has this big population of serfs that it can just throw at an enemy, that it can just bury under the new highway in St. Petersburg, and he's picking up on a critique that really has been internal to Russian culture. But then you have Marshak, the the journalist qua magician. I mean, what is he exactly, who is so cynical? And so he represents kind of what happened to the intelligentsia. It's hard to say. The contrast to Ivan Ivanovich, um somebody who's very well educated and knows everything. And yet, is kind of skating over the surface, enjoying pulling strings, again, without any regard for what happens to individual human lives. Mm-hmm. So it's a wonderful way of deconstructing the idea of this wonderful Russian world. Um, I often point out to students if we're trying to explain what has happened in, in contemporary Russian culture, the, um, and its relationship to Russian literature, which is my specialty too, spent all these years teaching. I wrote my dissertation on Marina Tsvitaeva, who I would say was a good Russian. But in any case, read her poems for for Czechia, if the woman knew what was going on, and probably hanged herself because her husband and children had a Jewish last name, and she knew what was coming with the Nazi invasion. But um, sorry, I've I've talked myself right out of answering your question. I got around to Tsvitaeva and didn't um, have a way to come back. But, um, yes, absolutely. The uh, deconstruction of Russian... Ah, it was the presentation in the beginning of the 2014 Olympics in Sochi that opened up with this big <laughs> celebration of important Russian writers. And, of course, we joke about Tolstoyevsky being our bread and butter, that this is the thing people want to take because they've read it in high school or they've heard about War and Peace. And the cultural references keep coming through. You know, Boris Vadanov in in the rocky and bullwinkle cartoons who refers to Boris dumal who sounds like boris good enough right that 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 level of elite russian culture being still very treasured in world culture being part of world literature being used as a pretext for claiming crimea claiming that russia is so much better than all these other guys and in particular that um ukraine is not a real thing Mm -hmm.
0: Um, So, some of the most touching episodes of the novel, in in my opinion, uh, are those that describe the lives of those who either uh, had to leave uh, this city Z or Z, or uh, they decide to stay or they want to leave, but they cannot for many reasons. And these stories also include those who lost their loved ones during shellings and uh, bombardments. These episodes also include very perceptive, I would say, descriptions of fear and helplessness and hopelessness when bombardments start. Um, the uh, characters start crying. So I remember there was this one episode in which a young woman uh, meets, uh, I'm forgetting her name, uh, sees um, uh, an old man walking <clears throat> along the streets and then the bombardment starts and then she takes him back to his apartment. And um, uh, he lives with his also elderly wife. And they just, they stick together, actually. But uh, that episode was very, very uh, touching. Or there was another episode in which uh, a mother realizes that her son was actually shot because she sees some uh, group of people. So, and here Rafayenko seems to be asking not to judge everyone uh, who didn't leave the occupied areas, or oh, Buta uh, Rafayenko's strengths as a writer who explores human nature and who writes with tremendous compassion, kindness, and humanness, I would say? Uh, absolutely.
1: I mean, I think the fact that he shows sympathy for Ivan Ivanovich, and maybe not for Mashak, whose name I think is a joke about Mashak, the beloved children's writer, who by all accounts was a good guy. And yet, right, see, all, yeah, everything has been kind of turned towards evil by this Russian world. Um The compassion, particularly in those embedded stories that are presented as if they're the work of this chemist who's turned into a masseur, absolutely. And the characters in those stories are very ordinary people. They are not uh, heroic. They're not beautiful. Many of them are middle-aged or very ordinary. They're held back by concerns about things that they really ought not to be that concerned about. It's the, the way our ordinary life and the things we enjoyed in our ordinary life remains important to us even at the point where we really should get out and uh the one that the one that made me feel the most um that I teared up translating is where the um the bell ringers at a cathedral um, have a conversation and the older one says i can't leave i just invested in all this stuff and then gives the younger one a ride home with his son the the older one's son in the back seat and the younger one leaves a few weeks later, not well planned, he just kind of tears himself out like a sore tooth and it takes a while for the rest of his family to join him, but then he gets a call on his cell phone from the older one whose son has just been shot um, 27 times or 29 times or something by some thugs and the local now authorities aren't going to do anything to help. And so you feel suddenly in the position of this Rather ordinary man was made it out to the West and now he's facing having to reinvent his entire life, talking to somebody he really admired, being told that the young man whose handsomeness he had admired when they were taking this brief ride down back um, to his home from the cathedral on the hill. <laughs> and and he starts crying, and so do you as you're meeting. So, absolutely, that the many, many, many ways that the whole situation has made people miserable. Um, not just the ones who've been killed, and of course in, the, in these stories, they're realistic. So people get killed with an ax, people get bombed as they're driving in a van to try to leave. People get shot in a, in a little pitched battle in which that a Russian or Russian world officer runs away, leaving these fresh recruits to be mowed down. That's over and over again. Uh, the thing that holds all these disparate stories together is the uh, magnetism of the main characters, the, the three main characters, and then there are a few not quite so main characters who recur. And it reminds you wait a moment, this is that really interesting young woman who's not neurotypical, where this is the massage guy who has a problem with alcohol in addition to this talent for writing, right, and looks looks like such a bruiser. And then um, the, the philosopher who's the head of the bathhouse, we haven't even talked about the bathhouse yet. Fascinating man, and he's just so gentle and so intellectual, and and yet doesn't believe some of the crazy stuff that's going on because it sounds too crazy. And we know because we were just reading in the previous chapter that what he's just been told and doesn't believe is absolutely true. So the idea that um, the world has been turned upside down—you mm-hmm. can't—you can't, you can't um, decide what's true just by using the peacetime skills of analysis that you've been taught. And this man is a retired philosophy professor who could analyze discourse better to ascertain whether it's logical, and yet he can't. All of those skills have left him sort of a fish out of water.
0: Mm-hmm. What would you say that the novel is optimistic? and maybe oh, yes. Absolutely.
1: You know why it is, though? Because it's so much fun to read. And so, even if everything is horrible, that's not true that everything's horrible. There are moments that are just funny and delightful. You come out thinking, okay, this guy got away. He wrote this book. It's such a good read. It's such a good read. That's the only reason why I regret the, the uh, appendices, the appendices that pull you back to the, the historical reality. Of course, that's important, but what a good read it is. What a good read it is. I hope that like the, the second edition will be presented as a, you know just as a novel that mm-hmm. is a work of literature of course no novel is only a work of literature um that the subtitle the urban ballad the ballad is a genre of course is a folk genre that then got picked up by romantic poets but that genre tells you somebody's gonna get beheaded or somebody's mother is gonna poison him or somebody's gonna get jealous of her younger sister and push her into the stream and the younger sister's gonna drown you know jealous because this this fellow they both both fancied only fancies the younger sister So there's this sense of the kinds of tragedies that happen in traditional society being presented both to move people, but also to entertain people in that way that a sad story entertains. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So I uh, uh, I wanted to go back to that comment that you made about the bathhouse as the hmm. main location. So until uh, the very end of the novel I was wondering why it was a bathhouse <laughs> um why, why this this location was uh chosen as the uh, center right of the, of the novel. So uh, what's what's your interpretation about that bathhouse? About
1: the bathhouse. Well, first of all the, the name of the bathhouse fifth rome is very, very funny. Um if one has uh studied a history of that part of the world at all. And, um, anyway, lots of thoughts about that, but the fact that it's running, let's say on geothermal energy, right? It's extremely interesting that it taps into, I won't go into detail because it's so fun to find out what actually powers this, this bathhouse. It took me a while to figure it out because it's narrated in a way that when you go back, it's very clear what's being talked about, but not clear at all. The first time you read it, you just figure, okay, I'll, I'll figure this out. But, um, the fact that it's not part of the Russian world, the fact that it's really a a thing with very deep roots, a thing that's been there for a long time, and a thing that has its own scary power, and it's doing things that the characters might not at all want to do. They try to adapt, they're picking up, they realize that going down into the basement, as it were, with holy scriptures and then chanting psalms or singing popular songs seems to help the situation. But uh, very peculiar and, and really very entertaining once you realize what's going on. The uh, the situation in Kiev winds up being resolved, beginning in a bathhouse. So the idea of the bathhouse, I think, is very important. That of course, um, the chronicles in Kiev pointed out that when St. Andrew came to visit, he went up to Novgorod. And these people were crazy. They worshipped bats. And they sat in darkened little structures and... Um, equipped each other until they were faint so that part of bathhouse culture maybe not being um you know originally part of um what's now ukrainian culture but um the idea that you go in and you get clean you go in and you detox you go in and you shed all this stuff that's been going on and, and part of the discussion of the bathhouse says you know to Ivan Ivanovich and his ilk, oh, well, you've killed people and you've done all this horrible stuff, but you're at the bathhouse and you're drinking beer and your conscience can kind of let its black beak lower down. The idea of the black beak comes up um, in multiple parts of the novel and in places that you wouldn't expect to connect. Mm-hmm. So I think Rafa is a poet. I think he's a, yeah. a brilliant, a brilliant constructor and he's turned a really tragic episode in his life although as it turns out not the most tragic episode um, You know, we could talk a little bit about how they were rescued from from outside Kiev and not quite butcha but close to butcha I mean that's a word now you say to anybody who reads the news and they just cringed and think oh my god how, was, how did that work out but he's turned this tragic episode into something complicated it has kind of a quilt like feature that you see this little bit that refers to that novel or to this bit of popular culture, and and again, I want to emphasize a certain critique towards the Ukrainian government of that time, a certain mm-hmm. critique towards the way um, even good people in that eastern part of, of Ukraine after 2014 were trying to not collaborate, but just to get along. They kept hoping it won't get any worse, and of course, it kept getting worse. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, So did you have a chance to talk about this novel with your students or introduce Trevajenko's writing to your students?
1: Not yet. We're going to read it in the fall. I'm teaching. (laughs) I was on leave last year. In the fall, I taught a translation workshop, which was a lot of fun, Um, obviously related to this, but not in a way that would have them reading it but I will be teaching the novel in the fall mm-hmm. in a seminar on East European literature. Mm-hmm. So Rafienko in the context of Ivo Andrich and Isaac Bashevis-Zinger and Milan Kundera oh, and, and so presenting him as um, not the latest link in a chain of great uh, prose writers, but definitely as someone who's entering that conversation that I think in the United States, again, there's not enough attention paid to, to um, Writers beyond the Tolstoy,
0: yeah, I, I would like to go back to um, the comment that you made at the beginning of our conversation about uh, education, right, in the States, and particularly education that centers on some specific regions, like, let's say, uh, Ukraine or Belarus or Moldova, that are somehow associated right with that part of the world (laughs) and by that part of the world we usually mean russia so what are the main challenges in your opinion right Uh, uh, teaching uh ukrainian literature for for instance or ukrainian studies in general uh and um how those challenges can be handled today well i had
1: i had a funny conversation this is not really answering your question about how to handle the challenges but a funny conversation in the first or second year that I was teaching. So it was 1990 or 1991, perhaps right after maybe this early 1992. And I mentioned to my class that um, there were 45 million people in Ukraine, and yet the language is hardly taught. One of the students raised her hand and said, Not 45 million. That's near. You're wildly overestimating. Well, there happened to be a prospective student sitting in the class with her father who was from Ukraine. And he said, No, she's right. It's about 45 million. And um, And i thought well hooray he he approved but the student had no idea and yet was arguing (laughs) and if it were 45 million i would know about it that um at that moment there was a lot of discussion of eastern europe but you're right Moldova, especially belarus somewhat less and ukraine somewhat less now no longer the case that it's really written out um how do you learn about it i think either you go to saturday school you're from a community that's maintaining its, its language. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a friend who lives in Philadelphia. There's a big Ukrainian uh, immigration in Philadelphia. A friend who was, uh, her mother and aunt were slave laborers and they got out in the second wave of immigration. And um, she was sent to kindergarten speaking only Ukrainian. So that's one way, you just mm-hmm. you just make your kids be, be Ukrainian. What if you're like me and you don't know Ukraine? You have to find a place that teaches it. And I was offered graduate school funding at a place that didn't teach it. There were Ukrainian books on the shelf in the library. Apparently there had been a crazy old cataloger who kept ordering books from Ukraine. And so they were on the shelf, but no one came and learned it. That's no longer the case. Now there are really good specialists in Ukrainian, not only at Columbia, where Mark Andrychik teaches, not only at Harvard, where there's been now um, over half a century of really solid looking into Ukrainian culture, language, literature, multiple interesting people who've taught there or who are teaching there now. The University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign has one who's who's super. So it's really turned around. It's really turned around. And yet, if you look, most of the people teaching Ukrainian are from Ukraine. Or they're from a Ukrainian, Sam Markov. I think he was born in, in Philadelphia, I think. So how do we make it something that... Uh, People learn about, read about in a class. Um, You know, these kids who have heard about Ukraine in the news are going to come in and read this novel in my class in the fall. Will that inspire them to apply for summer funding to learn some Ukrainian and then to go there? Uh, We have a former student, Kimberly St. Julian um, of with whom you may have spoken at AC's, who um, went over to Ukraine to study as a graduate student, and uh, now is back in graduate school, finishing a PhD at the University of Pennsylvania. And um, at Swarthmore College, she could only take Russian. That was all all we could give her. And, th- and yet she went over it and and pursued it on her own. So,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. So yeah, it's 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 a, compl- a complicated question, right? How how we start and what can be that trigger point that would uh, encourage students to study either it will be the ukrainian language or it will be ukrainian literature through courses like you will be offering in the fall where we put ukrainian texts into a broader context right in maybe european context or even in just in general world context mm. literature mm-hmm. yeah. uh, and um, I-, I wanted to uh, ask you uh, my final question about uh, your um, translation routine, right? So what's, what's your translator's golden rule, if there is one? Uh,
1: I do have a golden rule. You're actually, you guessed, my Forester's first and last rule of translation is it always takes longer than you think it will. But it's not interpretation. Translating something like Claude's novel, you are not going to be able to do it off the top of your head. The kinds of things you can do off the top of your head are mostly things that are vulnerable to interpretation like arms negotiations or business discussions where there's a set vocabulary everybody agrees this is what we're going to be talking about and if you're lucky there's a joke that you can translate by saying the tour de france instead of nfl football so that the recipients get the joke but um uh, my routine is i sit down and i do a bulldozing version where i just go through and put down all of the possible ways of translating a word or a different word order for a sentence. And it takes a very long time and it's not much fun and it goes very slowly. So when I go back and look at the novel again, I'm surprised by how quickly a certain scene passes that felt to me like it lasted forever. After that first phase, everything is enjoyable, interesting. Uh, I love getting comments from people like Vlad Kvartua, who knows so much about Ukrainian culture. I mean, he's just the right age. A little younger than Rafayenko, so maybe even a little sharper with the the latest funny things that the quote cool kids are saying. Mm-hmm. At um, going back and choosing, but saving that first version that's twice as long as the eventual manuscript, so that you have, if if something isn't working, you can go back and check and see, what was it that I meant to say? So that's that's my routine. Mm-hmm. I more often translate poetry, which goes faster because you get through the draggy version, and then you can go back. And you can print it out and you can sleep with it under your pillow and have an idea first thing in the morning for, for fixing something. Get an idea in the shower. You have to be open to ideas in the shower, mm-hmm. especially with a writer like Rafael. He really is. You can see the, the deep philological subtext of all of his writing. He just knows so much literature.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate when you uh, described him as a poet. He's indeed a poet. Uh, well, thank you so much, uh, Sibylline. Thank you for sharing your uh, translation routine and for uh, sharing your thoughts on the novel. And of course, uh, thank you for bringing this novel to our anglophone readers. And uh, thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Natalia. I hope everyone will go out and buy the novel after hearing this conversation.
0: Today I spoke with Zebilan Forster, a translator of Volodymyr Rafayentor's The Length of Days, an urban ballad, which was published by Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute in 2023. Thank you for listening to New Books in Ukrainian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. <music>